I'm in a series on why God ordained the family. When God directs a word to a church or to you, do you know that included in that word there is an anointing to make what that word is speaking about happen in your life? That's right. It carries an inherent anointing. And in this series, when I'm talking about why God ordained the family, you should expect God to step into your family and make some changes, do some things, fix some things. I was so blessed because just today I had someone in my office who has been in a fractured family relationship, and this was in the, before the first service, and they and their son have not talked in years. And they've been fractured in their relationship with another part of the family. And just this week, God broke that. And they have bridged the gap. And they are. And that son was weeping with his father. I thank God for what is happening. When I, The first Sunday I preached on this. The very next day I received a text message. And uh, I don't even know who the family is, but there was a family that was on the verge of divorce. And after that Sunday, the husband said, we're not getting a divorce. We're making this work. Amen. I'm reading from Psalm 68, verse 4 through 6. Sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless. I want you to see that, that God, when he sees somebody that is alone, and I will in this series also speak to singles, but when God sees someone who is alone, he goes and wraps his arms around them because God does not like people to be alone. He didn't want Adam to be alone. He is a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. In another session that I was just in a while ago, someone that I was talking with made the observation that God makes connections in terms of church relationships. And they're a member of this church because God made that relationship. God does. God sets you in families. He does. He will set you in a church family. He will create your personal family for you, the nuclear family. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today and let your word impact our lives. Let it change us, work miracles in this house, among family members, among husbands and wives, work miracles for singles, for millennials, people who are here that are contemplating their future and what family means. I ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. My subject today is part two of Will the Circle Be Unbroken? When I spoke about God's plan for the family two weeks ago, I pointed out that the Hebrew word for family, most often used in the Old Testament, is miopaka. It means circle of relatives or kinfolk. A circle is a protective line of defense against attack. It refers to the perimeter that in hostile territory is set up to make sure that you have people watching during the night when others who are vulnerable because they're sleeping are depending upon you to protect them. This was once a common part 
of society in every place in the world. In some places, it still is common. Uh, you go to Europe, you will find these old castles. And America, you will find forts. All of this was designed to provide a perimeter of defense for those who were inside. Amen. General George Patton, old blood and guts Patton of World War II fame, the U.S. commander in Europe, once told in a speech of something that occurred during the war. He told of a German soldier who went to sleep while he was on sentry duty. To give you some context for this story, America had been attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, and four days later, war was declared against us by the Germans. We not only had to fight for our survival against the Japanese on the Pacific front, but also against Nazi Germany and their ally Italy, fascist Italy, on the European front. Our future as a nation was literally hanging in the balance for a time it was touch and go as to whether we would even survive. I'm old enough. I wasn't alive during the war. I wasn't born to some years after, but I'm old enough that I remember my grandmother's stories of what was going on during the war and my dad's stories. My dad worked in a shipyard building uh, naval vessels that were used in the war. Many women for the first time in the history of this nation began to then work outside of the family home. And instead of being a stay-at-home mom to raise kids, there's Rosie the Riveter, if you will remember uh, the familiar uh, a face of the lady who had took a job building things that would help us be able to win that war. They threw everything they had against us. Fighting was brutal. We lost almost 500,000 people who were killed in that war. For a time, we didn't know if we would make it. There would be these engagements, and you would have between the two camps no man's land. It would be crisscrossed with concertina wire, with razor blades built into the wire. Some of you that have a military background know a little bit about what I'm talking about. Others see the wire on top of the wall at certain businesses that will keep people from getting in. That's razor blades on that wire. It will cut you to pieces. And out between the two perimeters, there was no man's land. And it was littered with bodies and bomb craters. And there were still the screams of the dying and the wounded out there that you couldn't get to to save them just yet. And on both sides, there was this cat and mouse game that was being played where commandos, the forerunners of today's special forces, would go out under cover of darkness and creep and try and find a vulnerable place in the front line of the enemy. They were doing it to us. We were doing it to them so that they could break through. General Patton told of a German soldier who went to sleep at his post, and that night, because he went to sleep, one of our commandos led our forces into their camp and killed 400 of the soldiers that were there to fight against us. They paid the price for that sentry going to sleep while on duty. And while it is true that they were our enemy at the time, it must be remembered they were some mother's sons. Amen. They were somebody's brothers. They were someone's husbands. They were some child's fathers. 400 men died. Today we're allies with Germany and Italy both. 
All because somebody went to sleep, the circle was broken. We're in another kind of war today, a war for the family and the values and the futures of its members. And like the commandos of World War II, the enemy is constantly probing to see if he can find an opening where he can attack the family and destroy it. Mom and Dad, we cannot afford to be lulled to sleep at our post by the spirit of this age. The enemy is out to get your kids, out to get you, your marriage. God himself ordained and blessed the creation of the family. Any other social arrangement that is made by mankind to replace what God himself has created is going to be a poor substitute. It will not be as good as what God created. The story is told that, you, that there were scientists that because of our advanced uh, scientific breakthroughs. They decided now they didn't need God and they were boasting. We can do everything God can do. We know the universe was made. We can do this. We can do that. And God came and said one night, he said to them, he showed up and his voice spoke and said, let's have a, a contest and see if you can do what I can do. He said, let's make man. And so science began to gather up dirt to take to the laboratory. And God said, oh no, you got to go create your own dirt. Amen. There are many reasons that God created and ordained the family. And I want to give you some of them to consider this morning in your fight to preserve what God has given you. Number one, families are an earthly reflection of our heavenly father's love. The Bible tells us clearly that God has covenanted to love us, forgive us, and to never forsake us. Hebrews chapter 10, 16 through 17, this is, notice, the covenant, not a contract, a covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Is there anybody in the building that wants to thank God because God doesn't remember our past? Thank God. Oh, hallelujah. Bless his name. I, I know where he found me, but God doesn't remember any more of my past. And I want to tell you, people may drag up your past and the devil might, but God never will. Because it's buried under the blood. Somebody ought to say, thank God for the blood. We had communion to remind us of that just a while ago. But these words in Hebrews reminds us and tells us that this is not a contract between us and God. It's a covenant. And there is an important distinction between the two. A contract is a binding agreement that has particular stipulations agreed to by both parties. But a covenant is more, much more than a contract. While it also includes stipulations just as a contract does, it is different in this way. A covenant is based on relationship. You can have contracts with people and not even know who they are. There are contractors that are working right now on our new facility. I have never met them, don't know their name, but we have a contract with them. You understand, I'm not in covenant with them. We have a contract. And marriage, God defines as being a covenant, not a contract. Contracts can have a cancellation or a non-performance clause and can be broken. A covenant is never supposed to be broken 
until death. In Malachi chapter 2, most of you are familiar that God begins to outline the problems that Israel has and the reason they're in the situation they're in. Their offerings, for example, have not been what they should have been. They're offering God less than their best. They're taking crippled lambs or they run out in the field when a wolf is attacked their flock and the dying lamb they rush it to the house of God and say here's my tithe here's and God said that's not right in Malachi chapter 2 verse 13 God said this is the second thing you do as he outlines their problems you cover the altar of the Lord with tears with weeping and crying so he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with good will from your hands yet you say for what reason God says this, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by, say it, it's not contract. Not only is a marriage a covenant between you and your spouse, but in Proverbs 2.17, the scripture says a marriage is also a covenant with God. In Proverbs 2, it cautions men to be aware of the woman. Verse 17, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Marriage is not just a covenant between you and your companion. It is also a covenant between you and God. And this is important because marriage is meant to teach us about the unconditional and everlasting love that God has for us. And on earth, it demonstrates in a practical way his commitment to never leave us nor forsake us. Somebody ought to say amen. Years ago, one of the men in this church, a man who became my very good friend and who has since gone on to be with the Lord, Mike Massengill, brought me a computer and set it up in my office. Mike's family are here this morning, maybe in this service or the next one. And they're committed members of this church family and have been for years. Mike was my buddy. Mike was a walking computer. You talk about software genius. This guy was incredible. And this was when personal computers first came out, PCs. Some of you millennials, you can't ever remember a time when there wasn't a computer. But some of us can. And when they first came out, quite frankly, I didn't know if I wanted one or not. Because it required me to learn a new skill set. And when I turned one on, Mike brought it in the office, turned it on. I figured out real fast why they call that little flashing thing a cursor. Amen. You you know what I'm talking about. Amen. But Mike was so excited. He called me Rev. He said, Rev, he said, tell me what in the world you would like to know. Is If there's anything you want to know about the Bible. He had installed a Bible software program And I want to tell you where I got hooked. I was skeptical at first, as I mentioned, because I didn't know if I wanted to put in the time necessary to learn how to operate a computer. But he asked me, what do you want to know in the Bible? And I had heard that 366 times it says in the Bible that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And I asked Mike, is that true? He typed in a command and there it popped up on the screen 366 times. Where God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. One for every day of the year and one for leap year. God is not the kind to walk away. Somebody in the building ought to say amen. God won't leave you 
And the family on earth is supposed to model the same level of commitment that God himself has to us. A contract might be annulled when things are tough, but not a covenant. Because a covenant is until death. Families stand beside each other. Through thick and thin, if others walk away, a family's never supposed to walk away. And this is why God hates divorce, because it models on earth his commitment to us from a heavenly perspective. And even with the biblical reason for divorce, which is allowed, the Bible does make a provision for it that is only for certain things. It is not what God ever wanted for someone's home. It's only allowed in extreme cases. And if you want to know why it's allowed, I'm going to tell you. Divorce is allowed only to stop the hemorrhaging and harm caused by the destructive and moral behavior of a family member and therefore try to limit the damage it is causing to the other members of the family. But it is not God's will that it ever go there. And you say, will a divorce affect our kids? I am a living product of what will divorce will do. You might find it hard to think of me as a kid being as old as I am, but I came from a broken home. And some of you came from a broken home. And I want to tell you, there's nobody that escapes in a divorce. It marks you. And it affects you with issues of trust. The hardest thing I ever had to do was to learn to trust God because I had been betrayed as a child by people that were supposed to be committed to me. Amen. This is why mom and dad, if you're thinking about divorce, get it out of your mind. Be committed to each other because you're modeling God's love on earth in a practical way. And you're shaping your children's image of who God is while demonstrating the eternal nature of his commitment to us. Number two, families are where we should first learn about the things of God. Somebody said, but I send my kids to Sunday school. I hope you do. But don't think that that's all that is necessary. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child. He's talking to parents. And the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. You can't turn over your responsibility. To train your child to a church. Charles Spurgeon, the great dean of preachers in London from years ago, once observed that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Amen. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. He also said, but for this book, we could not know right from wrong. This book is to guide our steps. Sunday school is wonderful. And many of the earliest lessons I learned from the Bible, I learned in Sunday school. But the truth is, is that Sunday school alone isn't enough to ground a child in the word of God. How can in one hour we put enough into your child to affect him positively and help him overcome the negativity of the other 167 hours in the course of a week. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen through 21, you shall teach them. I've emphasized the personal pronoun that speaks in regard to us. You shall teach them to your children. Speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your father. 
fathers to give them like the days of the heavens above the earth. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Thirteen times the personal pronoun, you or yours, is used in just three verses, clearly laying the responsibility for the training of a child upon the shoulders of the parent. Jewish people had yeshivas. They had rabbis who taught, but God said that's not good enough. It's the responsibility of every mom and dad to ground their children in the Word of God. Four teachable times are mentioned in these verses. Number one, when you sit in your house, that's dinner time. That's family time. Number two, when you walk by the way. We don't walk anywhere anymore. We go by car. Number three, when you go to bed, the Jewish day began in the evening. Remember that. Begin your day at the altar when you go to bed. And when you get up in the morning, you start your day. Amen. Are you begin, you end the old day at the altar. Oh, listen to what I'm talking about right now. And I want you to understand something. When you apply these four principles, it will change your life. My dad would not let us eat supper until he was sitting in his place at the head of the table. Because he said, this is our time together as a family to try to heal some of the damage that's been done in our lives. Amen. When you walk by the way, instead of listening to your music, boom, 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 or whoever you like to listen to, oh, Frankie Boy Sinatra, I don't care who you like. Michael Buble, what you need to be doing is telling your child God's hand is on your life. You're a child of destiny. Amen. When you end the day, which is the beginning of a new day, amen, you started at the altar. The same thing when you get up in the morning. A family altar and daily devotionals prepare each member of the family for the day that lies ahead. It provides an anchor that will hold them steadfast in the ways of God. God said, if you get that word in your child, when he's old, he won't depart from it. I want you to know the family that prays together really does stay together. I I need an amen. Proverbs 22, 6 also teaches us something else. Families are where the values we will embrace for the rest of our lives are formed in us. I agree with James Dobson when he said there is nothing more important than families or parents passing on a generational legacy of faith and values to their children. Dad, mom, The single most important thing you will ever do in your life is not the career you build, the house you move into, or the car you drive, or the vacation you take, or the money you set aside. It's that child you're raising that will be your single greatest achievement and accomplishment in life. And since that's true, what are the values you're passing on to your children In the home, we learn the importance of things like honesty and integrity, the need to be courteous and to be kind. We live in such a hostile world right now. Somebody's not teaching their children how to respect humanity. You think the school's going to do it? Unfortunately, with all of the wonderful godly teachers that we have even in our church, their hands are tied. They can only do so much. We're taught in school that we were not made in the image and likeness of God. We are the byproduct of evolutionary forces beyond our control. Survival of the fittest. That's, that's what we're taught in schools. You know that to be the case. They have basically reduced us to 
the level of just a, a, an animal that evolved a little bit faster than the ones that are following us. And then they want to know why a kid takes a gun and goes to school and shoots a bunch of his classmates. Well, you told him that he was an animal for heaven's sakes. What are you expecting to act like? Amen. This is also why in America we have aborted 65 million children since 1973. And people will not shed a tear. Yet they will cry over an SPCA commercial with a little puppy shivering in the cold with a tear running down his face. Can I preach? I ask you, can I preach today? A child should be taught that everything God created is special. You don't harm anything he created. You don't abuse a dog. You don't abuse a cat. You shouldn't even throw, I won't even throw litter out the windshield of my car. This is God's earth that I live on. I'm a steward of his earth. Amen. Children and adolescents in the United States spend an average of about seven and a half hours a day using various forms of entertainment media such as television, video games, the internet, and recorded music. Seven and a half hours. Unfortunately, if you think that programs they're seeing on TV are teaching them values, you're wrong. They teach anything but the values we hold important. They pulled the lid off the cesspool and you looked down into the sewer just recently and saw the Harvey Weinstein thing and everything else that's going on right there. That's what they're teaching your kids. The average American child will witness 200,000 violent acts on television before the age of 18 and over 16,000 murders. They will also themselves have killed over 100,000 people on video games. And then we wonder why they did that. I didn't think he had it in him. They didn't have the values in them. That's what they didn't have. They need the family to teach the values. Number four, families are where a person first develops self-esteem and discovers they are of great value. Because human life has been treated so cavalierly in this nation and the world, we are struggling with a moral crisis that is bigger than we can cope with regarding how human beings treat each other. There is way, way, way too much violence and hatred Did you read about the kid in the news yesterday in school in North Carolina that was reprimanded by his teacher and punished because he dared call her ma'am? They're taught to disrespect. The mother went up there, complained. They just transferred the child to another class, left the teacher in place. What is going on? You can't depend upon the system out there to do what you need to do. And once again, I applaud. You hear me? I applaud the efforts of our teachers. We've got people in this room with doctor's degrees in education, master's degrees. They're teaching. I applaud you for the way you love your students. Amen. But I'm talking about the system. Laws can legislate how people are supposed to behave, but they can't change the person's heart. Only God's word can change this. I stood at the grave of William Wilberforce in Westminster Abbey. I've been there on a number of occasions. It profoundly affects me. A great Christian who at the height of slavery began to petition that the UK ban slavery and the rest of Europe. He did so because of what he read in the word of God. He championed abolition. 
On his deathbed, they brought him word that the British Parliament had just passed what he had spent his lifetime fighting for, and slavery was abolished. The anti-slavery movement William Wilberforce began crossed over the Atlantic Ocean to the United States, and slavery was abolished here as well. Do you know who led the charge? It was Christians, 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 Christians. Do you hear me? You're not going to learn the value of a human being somewhere else. You learn it because of this book right here. When man is understood to have been made in God's image and God's likeness, you can't harm another human being. Amen. I see all of the division that is occurring right now as differences are multiplied and focused on and made bigger and bigger like, like focusing on the issue and railing about that is going to fix anything. It was the philosopher Santayana who said, we cannot, if we cannot remember the past, we are condemned to repeat it. Amen. It is also true that the people, that people have used the Bible to teach their perverted doctrines of hatred, but they have to twist the scripture to do it. Jesus said, you've got to love people. God is love. Do you hear what I'm saying? And there's an old song that goes like this, makes me love everybody. Amen. That's what the gospel will do. Amen. He also told a story of a, of a, a man that fell among thieves as he was coming down the road toward Jericho. And there walked by the Levite on one side of the road. And there walked by the priest on that same side of the road. But the man on the other side of the road, they ignored. And a Samaritan came along that didn't even have a relationship with this man. What of his culture? And you know what he did? He crossed the road to go minister to the man. You see, the problem is so many people are willing to travel the world. To go to great lengths, they'll go wherever the road takes them to reach somebody, but they won't cross the road to help somebody that's of a different community. Or we began this when I came to be pastor here 30 years ago. I said, we're not going to be a white church. We're going to be a multicultural church. We're going to reflect what God has caused to live in this area. That's who we are. You say... Well, pastor, what are you trying to do? We are trying to include. Do you see this? When he died, he died with his arms wide open for the whole world to come. That's what Christian Tabernacle is about. You learn the value of people and a child learns his own value in a home with loving parents. Number five, families are the first line of defense against the enemy. The prayers of a family are among the most important and powerful prayers that can be prayed in the world. Families who pray together form a perimeter of defense that the enemy cannot breach. You hear me, mom? You hear me, dad? You're the sentry. There's a circle that can't be broken. You can't allow the enemy to come in because commandos are out under cover of darkness and they're trying to infiltrate the lines and get to your kids. You gotta stand up and say you can't have them. You can't go to sleep right now. You can't go to sleep right now. Amen. You got to pray because prayer raises up a hedge of defense. There's not a devil in hell or out of hell that can penetrate the prayers of a godly mom or a godly dad. You raise up a shelter that protects your kids from the harmful influences of a very dangerous society. Last Sunday, we had the back to school rally. Unfortunately, many of our folk, it's going to get real quiet right now. Don't always come to that. But we had hundreds and hundreds of people from the community.
Gave out over 1,200, I think 1,200 or 300 backpacks. 300 and some odd people gave their heart to God last Sunday morning. Amen. We might have to start doing that on a Saturday simply because we got some folk that don't want to come. I personally think you ought to have been here. Amen. I was overseas in ministry. And or I would have been here. I take the time when we have a guest sometimes so I don't miss too many weekends to be overseas. But if you want to travel with me, I'll show you what church is like. It starts in the morning. You have services before noon, several of them. You have services through the afternoon. You're so tired, you're staggering toward the pulpit when they ask you to come up at night to preach. I've preached as many as seven times a day. Listen, can I just be frank? We ought to be able to go to church on Sunday because our kids need it. We're the perimeter of defense. Number six, families are where we first learn how to get along with others. Yes, we do. They teach us how to form lasting, mutually beneficial, earthly relationships. Truth, if you can put up with some of your family. And get along with them. You can pretty much get along with anybody. Am I telling the truth? Someone has said, home is where you are loved the most and act the worst. Somebody else said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family who lives in another state. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) If you can put up with some family members... It's in a family that you learn to deal with problems on a personal one-on-one level. I don't know if Jonathan's in this service or was in the first service. Jonathan, are you here? Raise your hand. Or he's, no, I see somebody. It's not him. He's too young to be my boy. Amen. Little boy sitting on somebody's lap. I I don't think my son's going to be sitting on anybody's lap. (laughs) Amen. I thought that was him at first. But Jonathan used to torment the daylights out of his sister. We had two kids. He would torment the daylights out of Rochelle. I'm going to be real transparent. More than a few times, John was introduced to the B-E-L-T. Not B-L-T, B-E-L-T. I didn't say a sandwich. Amen. In a family, you learn how to treat each other with respect. Number seven, families provide a biblical model for how successful spiritual relationships are to be developed. That's right. Churches are supposed to be frank and candid, but in love. I don't want to go to a church that doesn't preach to me the Bible. I don't care if it's not popular anymore in society. Look, I I go to church because I need the word of Almighty God. Just preach it in love. Don't do like they did when I was a kid growing up and act like you hate everybody. Preach it in love. But let me know what the word of God is. Churches are supposed to help you. Amen. A family will tell you what you need to hear. And a church is supposed to be a family. You learn how to have spiritual relationships later and allow a pastor to teach you the word of God when it actually is identifying certain areas of your heart you need to be, have corrected, you learn how to do that by being in a family. Amen. 
That's where you learn how to do it. And because so many families are fractured, first thing that happens is somebody preaches something you don't like. Well, I'm going to go find me another church. Amen. Because they didn't learn how to sit still long enough to allow a family to teach them about personal issues. Amen. Families, again, will teach you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. An elderly couple went to church. The husband leaned over and whispered to his wife, I just passed, forgive this, really long and silent gas. What should I do? The wife replied, the first thing you need to do is replace the batteries in your hearing aid. It wasn't long and silent. It was long and loud. Families will tell you that. Amen. If you got to have people around you that only tell you the good things in your life, you will never correct the bad things in your life. You will never grow. You will never become a better person. And your future is going to be limited because of that. This is why a church is called a family. It's why we call each other brother and sister. Amen. A Christ-centered family, you learn how to accept and appreciate it. When others point out to you that what you're doing isn't best for you or others either. And it's not the end of the world when they tell you. Because your self-esteem is not all wrapped up in what they say. You know in a family you have value. Even when they tell you when something is not right. Amen. The world undermines this whole process and the significance of the family. And it tries to substitute other things that will build self-esteem and significance. But they fail dismally. Participation trophies and passing everybody cheapens the process. Failing to recognize somebody's achievement. All that does is ensure that mediocrity will become the hallmark of that person's life. If you honor mediocrity, it will make sure that the person never grows beyond that level. Families are to call out the best of each other. I'm closing. Number eight, families are where we come to understand the value of men and their role in the home. When it's done right, where mom and dad are there and are loving each other and loving God, family works. It prevents the potential waste of a child, the decimation, the destruction of their talents and their gifts. Dad, your family needs you. Mom, your family needs you. The enemy is probing under the cover of the darkness of this age, trying to get in and break the circle. And if he can find you asleep, he will steal your children, steal their future. Amen. One of the things that we have to do as men is stop playing games with our family and put them where they need to be. Recognize the value of the women God has placed in our lives. Guys, remember, our wives can read us like a book. It was a wife who once said, when a man brings his wife flowers for no reason, there's a reason. They see right through us. 
It's while being in the family as a godly leader that a man finds the purpose for which he was created. Man, God made you to lead a family. He ordained your family. That family will represent and model the divine nature of Christ in the earth. In leading your family in love, you model the role of God for them. And finally, number nine. Families are where we learn the value of women and their unique role in the earth and in the family. The Bible is pro-woman. Some people think it isn't, but it is. Some of the greatest heroes in the Word of God were women. Read of Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Esther, and a host of others. Where would humanity be without Elizabeth, the mother of the forerunner of Christ, John Baptist? Where would we be without Mary, who gave us Christ and submitted herself to the will of God for her life? Women have always filled a significant role in the world. They aren't possessions to be owned by men or slaves to be ordered around. They are the living earthly model of the church of God in the earth. When you see a woman, you're looking at what God's church is supposed to look like in terms of its nurturing aspects. When you see the man, you ought to see the church in the earth in terms of what masculinity looks like. Firmness, standing up and being a man, fighting the devil, being a warrior. Hear what I'm talking about amen 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 and like i said a moment ago women really are much more than we realize don't estimate the underestimate the intelligence of your wife a guy once complained to his wife that he didn't know why god made her so beautiful but so dumb she replied god made her beautiful so the man would marry her but dumb so she would marry him And you know I can't leave the platform without talking about Boudreaux. So I'm going to get back to my culture like they say my raisin now, okay? Amen. Let this Cajun tell you a story. Boudreaux's wife, Marie, decided it was time their oldest daughter, Clotilde, learned how to get a husband. So she sat Clotilde down and said, the first thing you got to know is that it's better for the husband to think you're beautiful than it is for him to know you're smart. And Clotilde, the daughter, Ask, why is that the case, mama? I need, I need him to know I'm smart. She said, no, honey. He needs to know you're beautiful. The reason is the average man would rather, the, the average, sorry, the average man would rather you have more beauty than brains for a very simple reason. And that is because the average man can see a whole lot better than he can think. I take personal umbrage to that. Life application points. Begin to see your family as ordained of God. Stop complaining about the restrictions of family. Law is a good thing. If everybody ran these highways the way they wanted to, there's nobody who'd want to get on them. They would be death traps. Amen. Number two, stop looking at your marriage as a contract. Because there are many of us in this building, that's how I fear some people view marriage. Contract, it's really a covenant. Let your family and the roles you're meant to fill in it be a reflection of the nature of God. You ought to leave this service today and ask, am I as a parent, a mom and a dad, am I fulfilling the godly assignment 
that God has given me regarding my family? And do I look like God to my kids? Am I showing them the divine nature of God? And when the world looks at us, do they see the nature of God in our family? And number four, simply stated, make family work. Don't let the circle be broken. Don't let the circle be broken. I heard a preacher tell a story years ago. And his son was a little bitty guy, and he would wait for his dad. He wanted to ride home from church. He was, the dad was a pastor. He wanted to ride home from, from church with his dad. So he would sit out in the car while dad was having his final meetings after the services. And then dad would come out a little bit later, and they'd go home and have lunch. And he had learned that day about God. And when the dad got in the car, he said, Dad, today we learned about God. And the dad asked, well, what did you learn? And the little boy looked up. He's only about five or six. He said, today we learn that God loves us. And he loves us all the time unconditionally. What else did you learn? Today we learn that when we don't do what's right, our heavenly father has to punish us. And he said, today we learn that when we do good, God rewards our lives and blesses us. And the dad said it was the strangest thing. The little boy's eyes opened wide and he suddenly turned and looked at his dad and said, are you God? Because you love me unconditionally, you punish me when I do wrong, and you reward me when I do right. May your children grow up thinking you look like God to them. Would you stand with me right now, please? I'd like to invite you to come, and I want to pray for our families because there's an anointing of healing. And for families in fractured relationships, would you come? I don't know what you might be walking through as a family member right now. But as I mentioned, the first Sunday, we've already had one divorce that was canceled. Just today, this week, I I learned today about something that happened this week where a father and son that have been out of relationship for years, have not talked for years. That God's healing that relationship And they broke down and cried together. Move in close if you would. We've got people coming. Balcony, ground floor. Many of us as can. I'd really like for you to get close enough that I can pray with you. Dad, your family needs you. Mom, your family needs you. Many of you grew up just like I did in a fractured, broken home. And it's affected you. It has taken me my lifetime to work through just the issues I know that caused. My whole life, I'll have a birthday this week, but my entire life, I've been working on issues as a result of the fractured, broken relationships of my childhood. And that's just the ones I know about. And I finally worked through some of those and I think, well, I got that done and then I discovered there was some I didn't even know I had. We need to love each other. Treat each other with respect. Honor each other. 
I'll tell you a little story as I close before I pray for you. Jerry and I spent 19 years in evangelism. You know what that means? If you think it's staying in five-star hotels all the time, you just don't have any idea. I've stayed in church basements. We've lived in Sunday school rooms and revival meetings. We've stayed in pastors' homes. And we learned how to fight in whispers. I'm sure. We developed our own gang sign language. Amen. You couldn't, when you had a difference, you couldn't shout loud. I mean, pastor and his wife were in the next room. Church members in the building, having a prayer meeting. I was the man of God full of power for the hour, you know. How was I going to do all that? So we learned to fight in whispers. Then we settled down and we got our first home in Louisiana and I continued to travel and then we came over here and I've been here over 30 years now. We bought a house on the Old Pine right in this very community. And she and I, like most families would, we would have an argument. I want to tell you when the last time we had an argument was. We didn't have to whisper anymore. We had a house. I could get anointed. You know what I mean? I'd get anointed telling her the way things should be. And I realize that a lot of that was me because I was driven. I'm still driven. I'm very highly focused on what I need to do. And I think I hear from God and I'll, I'll march through hell to do what I think needs to be done. And there have been times she has tried to say, but wait, 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 wait. And we've had, we've had situations that we didn't agree on. And one day we were having a good one. <laughs> it was memorable. <laughs> and that little four foot 11 woman put her hands on her hips just like that and looked at me and said, you can't talk to me. I'm a child like that. I'm a child of God. And I had my, I had my finger all raised and my mouth open. And I closed my mouth and I dropped my finger. And that's the last time we've had a fight because I realized she was absolutely right. I'm married to a child of God. She's not just my wife. She's my sister in Christ. Father, I pray right now for every family. Bring healing. Bring healing. Where there's separation, where there's betrayal, bring healing. Where there are people in this room who have experienced betrayal, bring healing. I want you to restore, Lord, restore. Restore what the enemy has tried to destroy. And where we've gone to sleep, Lord, let us wake up with a resolve to to never, never, never let the enemy steal what's precious to us. That we will not allow the circle to be unbroken. I'm asking you to heal families that are contemplating divorce. I'm asking you to heal families where there's unfaithfulness in the home. I'm asking you to renew love. I'm asking you to restore trust. Restore trust. I ask it in Jesus' name.